0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
2: Ah, uh, yes, indeed. And here to say hello, welcome. Good to have you with us for this Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the 3rd of April. Pretty jam packed program for you tonight. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be talking with America's, or one of America's leading experts in the arena of brain sciences, geriatric care, and Alzheimer's. You know, right now there are 5 million Americans that have been diagnosed with um, one form of dementia or Alzheimer's. And as the baby boomers continue to age, that number is expected to triple by the year 2030. Wow. If your life, if your family has been touched by Alzheimer's, you know how difficult it can be. We're going to spend some time discussing how to best minister to both caregivers and family members diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Dr. Benjamin Mast joins us later on in tonight's program. As we lead off, you know, there's uh, numbers, statistics, and darn statistics, and you can make them pretty much say anything that you want them to say. One of the more widespread statistics that's often cited is the so-called gender pay gap, which I think in... Uh, 2019 has been designated as somewhere in the neighborhood of an 18% gap on average between men versus women. Um, But my first guest tonight would suggest that those numbers fail to take a lot of important things into consideration. And at the end, when you really sharpen the pencil, it suggests that we're doing far better when it comes to equality for pay between the sexes than many would suggest we are. Ryan Young is an adjunct fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and joins us now to talk about what seems to be some, um, what is this, Ryan? Is it intentional manipulation of the numbers or people that just don't go uh, deep enough? Is it Janet? You know what? (laughs) Ha ha! You You wish you'd caught me earlier. You know, it is Janet Folger, because I just introduced the wrong guest, which caught me on that one. Janet Folger joins us now. She's not going to say anything about uh, gender pay gap unless she's inclined to do so. Janet, you've hosted your own radio show for many, many years. You ever do that?
3: I have, as a matter of fact. And so, yeah, no, not a problem. So you got the wrong guest. You, you also had the wrong name. I've been married for now 10 years. That's
2: right. So J- uh, Janet, Janet Porter. Porter. But, but
3: I don't I don't blame you for that. We've we, known each other a long, long time. We
2: have, certainly. And and for listeners, uh, let me properly and appropriately introduce uh, my first guest tonight. Um, she is a best-selling author. She's been a syndicated talk show host. She's been on the front line of the pro-life movement for many, many, many years. She is president of Faith Two action and we're pleased to have uh, Janet formerly Folger Porter with us on the program today and Janet <laughs> I apologize for that uh, uh, my next guest I guess I we'll, we'll, we'll talk about pro-life issues and really get everybody confused
3: <laughs> there you go well listen I I, uh, I want to tell you we've got some pretty amazing news uh, I uh, I came up with an idea that God put in my heart about a decade ago and it basically said that, uh, listen, if we can't rescue every child just yet, let's protect everyone whose heartbeat we can hear. And the idea for the heartbeat bill was was conceived uh, in 2010. It simply says that if a heartbeat is detected, the baby is protected. And uh, it's funny, the Daily Beast came out with an article uh, last week, and they said it was a fringe idea. Heartbeat bills, once a fringe idea, could they overturn Roe versus Wade? And my answer is yes, yes they could, and uh, yes they will. Uh, They are taking the nation by storm. We saw three heartbeat bills uh, signed into law in the last 30 days. There's uh, three more that uh, are halfway in the process, and I believe Ohio, where it all started, the heart of it all, will uh, will be signing its bill, its heartbeat bill, into law by Good Friday. That's what I'm hearing, and uh, we expect a vote in the committee on the floor next week. And so we're seeing just God answer all kinds of prayers. And uh, here's the key. Here's the bottom line of all of this, uh, Craig. It's, it's we're going to end abortion. That's it. That's what's happening. And for every child whose heartbeat can be heard, uh, we're seeing it happen. Uh, it first started in, in Arkansas, then in, then in North Dakota, went to Iowa, uh, but um, most recently, Georgia, uh then Kentucky, Mississippi, uh and uh and we've got Missouri, Ohio and Tennessee that have each passed it through one of their houses. So they're 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 in the queue. They're ready to come out and uh we've also got heartbeat bills that are pending in Florida, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Minnesota, yes, even in New York. Uh they're uh working their way through the legislature in Texas. South Carolina just passed the committee. West Virginia, and yes, there's one in the United States Congress, H.R. 490, and God is on the move. It's uh, it's not, I think it's a little more exciting than uh, talking about the gender gap in pay and uh, the salaries.
2: But I, I, I certainly agree me. with you on that point, and you know it's, it's an interesting one, because this is an idea, Janet, as you suggest, really whose time has come. There has been this elongated debate over the issue of viability, and uh, for the longest time of course those on the pro-abortion side of the equation want Wanted to refer to the child not as a child or a baby, but as fetal tissue or a mass or a clump. I mean, it was always in, in a very dehumanizing, depersonizing fashion. But if we can come down to some sort of an agreement uh, as to a sense of when we start to say, OK, there's some viability here. And I think most people from either a scientific or even non-scientific approach can say, well, if we can detect a heartbeat. Wow, there's something there. There's life there. And this is what's been beautiful about this bill, is it really helps to derail many of the previous arguments that have been promoted by NARAL and Planned Parenthood and others that have tried to brainwash women into thinking that they're not pregnant with a child, they're pregnant with a blob.
3: That's what they've been saying for, you know, for 46 years. But you know, what I'm seeing them say is something different. They're coming to the hearings all over the country and they're saying that this is going to end all abortions. Because here's the bottom line. You've seen the bumper sticker. It's been around for decades. Abortion stops a beating heart. But the difference is with the heartbeat bill, a beating heart will stop abortion. abortion. And that's the key. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, it's the bottom line is, is that to deny a heartbeat is to deny science. To ignore a human heartbeat is just flat out heartless. And that's what we've seen uh, uh, in uh, in in now Hollywood that's threatening to boycott the state of Georgia. Well they're going to run out of places to to boycott because these things are passing all over the country um, and so it's it's just exciting it's an exciting time to be pro-life in in America because uh you know we're seeing People wake up to the fact that, and I'll just tell you, when they wake up to the fact that this baby in the womb has a beating heart, which, by the way, begins to beat at about 18 to 21 days. Now we don't get to hear that heartbeat till much later, maybe six weeks. Um, But if we protect the baby from where technology is today, we're going to protect nearly every child facing abortion. And technology is only getting better. So, so the beautiful thing is, um, this will save a generation of babies and just by the way just getting the word out just spreading the news and I'll just say we brought in the youngest to ever testify when we first launched this effort in ohio in two thousand eleven and then in congress as well we brought in an unborn child to testify in the judiciary subcommittee and that baby's heartbeat was seen and heard little baby lincoln was eighteen weeks old uh... he's now over a year old but what 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 happened in the committee that there were a lot of protesters and they were quite disruptive When that baby's heart was seen and heard, you could have heard a pin drop, Craig. It was silence in the room, and one of the protesters was seen wiping away tears from her eyes. And that taught me something, that that this baby's heartbeat can reach even the hardest of hearts, and just the publicity about this bill, we know, saved at least one life in Ohio, saved another in Arkansas, and others that we're hearing about. So it's, it's, a great, it's like basically putting a billboard across your state, even if it's in California. I say, introduce a heartbeat bill in California so that the world, so, the, so that the state of California will know that if there's a heartbeat, there's life. And just that information about the bill pending in a legislature that may try as hard as they can to block it. Just that bill, just the publicity or hearing about it will save lives. And that's really what it's all about.
2: It is indeed. And, you know, understandably, the impact of technology. Wow. I remember seeing my first sonogram. This is more than 15 years ago. And about 10 years ago, um, having access to video and sharing that with a friend who was decidedly pro-choice And saying, you're not convinced? Let me have you take a look at something that you can become convinced with. And play the sonogram video. And this person turned to me and with an utter look of shock on their face said, I guess you finally won the argument. And that's what this really does. It helps to win the argument and ultimately helps to save lives. Janet Porter, we appreciate the update. Hey, Janet, when you talk to Wanda next, you've got to tell her, hey, tell your host to introduce the proper guest. <laughs>
3: it's always a joy to be on with you. By the way, if you want to find out more, you can go to faith. The number two action dot org, and uh, you can get LinkedIn and, and get a, get a model bill and uh, the information so that you can do it in your state too.
2: You bet. More than a dozen states are already considering this, and uh, we'd like to see this thing sweep in the nation. Get more information online about the uh, heartbeat bill and their progress in states across the country, and how we can get involved in standing behind this everywhere. Online at faith the number two action dot That's faith the number two action. Dot O-R-G. And there's Janet Porter with us. All right, here at 517, I'm going to make sure I introduce the right traffic guy now. See, you got me spooked. <laughs> Steve Ferreira stands by in the KFAX Traffic Center to either tell us traffic or correct me. Hey, Steve.
0: Now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: All right. Uh, welcome back to the conversation 20 minutes after the hour. This will sound repetitive if you were with me 10 minutes ago. And and if you weren't, never mind. Uh, let's talk about the gender pay gap. Um, this is often wrestled with as one of the important things that needs to be accomplished that uh, America has uh, failed to really completely break that glass ceiling and allow women the same compensation for the same caliber and quality of work as men. And while I certainly uh, on principle would would agree with that, the numbers tell a bit of a different story. In fact, when you dig down, when you sharpen your pencil and really dig down to the data behind the numbers, it begins to paint a picture that we're actually doing a far better job when it comes to addressing the gender gap than most realize. Now, on average, you'll be told 18 percent. Women are earning 18 percent Less than men. If you're in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area, but there are a lot of $100,000 a year jobs, and you're doing the same work, and you're coming in, and uh, they are paying you eighteen dollars less than your male counterpart, you've got a good reason to be upset. But are the numbers really true? Let's dive in. Brian Young joins us, adjunct fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Brian, what about this? You say that the level of pervasive pay gap simply doesn't exist. Why? And the main
4: reason is because men and women take different amounts of time off. Um, You can call it fair or not. There are arguments for both sides. Uh, but women do the lion's share of child care in this country. So if a woman has a child, odds are it's going to be her and not her husband who ends up taking uh, time off of work to raise the child through school years, um, or to work on a part-time basis. And when they're capable of rejoining the workforce on a full-time basis, a lot of times because of all that lost time, they don't have they don't recapture their full earning power. When you account for that significant difference, and a similar dynamic is also in play uh, for taking care of sick family members, again, for reasons that may or may not be fair, women bear the brunt of that burden, the pay gap almost completely disappears so that there is only, instead of an 18-point differential, it's maybe 2 to 3%, which could be due to discrimination or it could be due to different factors. So the problem isn't nearly as bad as it would seem, and for reasons that I'd like to get into things are actually getting better
2: on that front. And do we need to really differentiate here then between the so-called gender pay gap and so-called equal pay for equal work? Because certainly if if, if we're going to have a honest conversation, we have to compare apples with oranges. You can't be quoting prices for apples and me comparing prices for oranges and come back and say, well, okay, there's our numbers. No, apples to apples, oranges to oranges. So that said, is part of this a matter of semantics that we're not necessarily, as people talk about this topic, not necessarily? Comparing the same thing? I think it's a mixture of sloppy use of statistics combined with uh,
4: the right impulse, wanting equal rights uh, for men and for women. Um, but people are barking up the wrong tree when it comes to the wage gap. There are other workplace issues, such as maybe a woman not being taken as seriously in a meeting as a man when both make the same point. are cultural factors like that that need to be talked about and need to be addressed. That is not a problem with wages, so people are talking about the wrong problem.
2: And if there's true evidence of wage discrimination, isn't that already illegal in the United States? And if so, shouldn't that discussion be taking place in front of a judge?
4: It is already the law of the land, and to a
2: large extent,
4: um, I don't know, Just the nice thing is that things are actually getting a lot better because of increased workplace flexibility. Um, one reason that many women have had to drop out of the workplace entirely is because a lot of employers historically have only offered a 9-to-5 schedule. If you can't do that, then you can't have a job. Now, with companies like Uber or Airbnb, a lot of people, women included, can set their own schedule so they can shift down to a part-time working status or even work full-time at hours that are better for their schedule, and that has an even further diminishing effect on the pay gap. So really, this is one, not a huge problem to start with, and two, it's actually getting better.
2: When you look at the raw data, um, and, and again, this is back to the notion of making sure that we're comparing apples with apples, um, does the raw data typically take into consideration all of the nuances? And by that I mean it's one thing to talk about um, uh, gender roles. But then there's the differences between education. There's the differences between career choices. Um, a, a woman obviously bearing the children may opt to say, I'm going to have the baby and immediately go back to work. Others say, no, I, I want some quality time here. I'm going to take advantage of the uh, the family um, uh, Medical Leave Act and spend some time with the child, whatever that period might be, a month, whatever. Um, and so I have to wonder, when we hear the numbers cited, are they really looking at all of these subtleties between age, education, experience, etc., uh, or do they kind of just generally for convenience discount those subtleties and as a result end up citing numbers that are largely skewed?
4: They usually just set the skewed numbers because they're the most convenient ones at hand. It takes a lot of time and effort to do the deep dive to do <clears throat> a fair apples-to-apples comparison, as you were discussing earlier. That literature exists, and it's not that hard to find. And when you do that, the pay gap almost disappears. And to go back to my point about people barking up the wrong tree, this could actually be quite harmful because suppose you're hiring a worker, and you know that if you hire... The female candidate instead of the male well maybe she might drop out of the workforce for five years after you invest all sorts of time training and taking incurring other expenses uh, if you're the employer the man could be a better value so if you're mandated to pay the same the woman might not even get hired in the first place and that is a worse outcome um, <clears throat> than without the law so there's a trade off and an unintended consequence here that Uh, maybe people should
2: look before they leave. So we we really need to be combating demonstrable cases of discrimination and dealing with that at face value. Now, you're not suggesting that there's zero evidence of um, inequities, but what you're suggesting is that the numbers are nowhere severe as they are and that if we get caught up in the minutia of the skewed data, that we're liable to overlook some real inequities that are taking place that that otherwise should be addressed that aren't being?
4: Yeah, the problem is not as large as advertised. They're talking about the wrong issues instead of the right ones, which do need to be addressed. And the proposals to the wrong problems have unintended consequences that are easily avoidable if people would focus instead on the right problems. So the pay gap is, the whole debate is doing much more harm than good.
2: And, again, I think to pull this back full circle, um, there there's a notion here that there's discrimination taking place. And if that is the case, then it needs to be combated. It needs to be called out for what it is. And employers that engage in that kind of behavior ought to be paying a penalty. Uh, they ought to have their day in front of a judge. And the judge say, you can't do that. Wage discrimination is illegal. Um, and And make sure that those kinds of issues are being confronted head on. I'd like to thank Ryan Young for being with us tonight, adjunct fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, for those insights. More information, by the way, on the web at cei.org. That's cei.org. All right. Thanks to Ryan Young. We are going to, oh, let me remind you, we won't be here tomorrow night. Figuratively speaking, we'll, we'll be here through the magic of radio, but um, tomorrow night we are live on location. Um, it is our kind of quarterly, these things seem to be happening quarterly, uh, Lifeline on the Road program. Uh, tomorrow night we are going to be in San Jose. This is free and open to the public, begins at 7 p.m., about an hour and a half, and we are going to record for later broadcast a live edition of Lifeline. Uh, We've got three Bay Area pastors that are going to be joining us um, from Hillside Church in San Jose. Of course, um, Pastor Keith Crosby, who also has a a -a six-time-a-week program here on KFAX, will also be joined by Pastor Cleveland Prince and by... Uh, who else is joining us? Oh, that's right. Pastor James, Dr. James Darnell will be with us. We are going to be wrestling through questions about what's happening with church attendance amongst millennials and the declining number of a church attendees that's a phenomenon, not just in the Bay Area, but across the country. And how do we address this? It should be cause for concern for the church. How do we respond to the growing number of millennials that once they reach the age of maturity and they're off to college say, that's it, I'm done. They no longer have any sense of connection to the faith of their fathers. And if God has no stepchildren, then how do we make sure that they have actually entered into a personal relationship with God that motivates them to continue to be plugged into the body of believers? That's going to be our topic tomorrow night. We've got three great guests, and we invite you to be with us, be a part of our... In Sanctuary audience, and you get a chance to also dialogue with our panelists, ask questions, and maybe even hear yourself later on on the radio. So that's tomorrow night at Hillside Church in San Jose at 440... 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. And you can get more details on the KFAX website at kfax.com. Again, free, open to the public. Uh, We had a great dialogue uh, the last time we did this back in February, March, something like February, I guess. And we're doing it again. So we hope you come out and join us and be a part of our um, live studio audience or, as we're calling it, the live sanctuary audience. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock in San Jose. Details on the KFAX website, kfax.com. You may push the button just like that. You'll love it. The orchestra is just waiting. Uh, Let's get a look at traffic. We've got the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center with Steve Ferreira. Steve.
0: Now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: All right, we are back. And as we dialogue, uh, continue the dialogue here, let's shift gears. Uh, Pretty serious conversation here. And I, I say serious because if your life, your family has been touched or impacted by Alzheimer's, you know what I mean when I say it is a pretty, rocky, unpredictable journey. There are 5 million Americans on that journey as we speak. And you know, what with the improvements in modern medicine and technology, Americans are living longer. That's the good news. But living longer also means um, a higher percentile, potentially, of Alzheimer's patients. It is predicted by the year 2030 that the 5 million today could look more like 15 million. So it's not just a question of what the odds are, but how do we deal with it? And if you're right there dealing with it now or, or dementia, you may be wondering, you know, we talk about meeting the physical needs of a dementia or Alzheimer's patient. Um, we we talk about dealing with the the memory care aspects of it. But one arena that largely until now seemingly has been set aside, and that is the spiritual care for Alzheimer's patients. Diving into that is Dr. Benjamin Mast. He is professor and chair in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Louisville. He's a board-certified geropsychologist and licensed clinical psychologist specializing in aging, Alzheimer's disease, and dementia-related issues. His new book is called Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of the Gospel During the Alzheimer's Disease. And Dr. Mast, thanks so much for being with us this evening
1: thanks very much for having me i'm glad to be glad to be with you tonight
2: this This is an issue that uh, that's kind of hits close to home for me because there's a, a loved one in my family that was diagnosed with dementia about two years ago and uh, quite admittedly i'm still kind of discovering my way through and working my way through all of this and and uh, learning many of the degrees of how you need to care and how that care Increases over time as the individual 's ability to to recall things and and deal with the with day to day challenges of life that you and I take for granted that for them become sometimes impossible it 's a big challenge and one of the one of the arenas that I, as I suggested in my opening remarks that tends to be kind of placed on the back burner is any degree of spiritual care. And I guess the the question to lead off with tonight, um, for the benefit of listeners, is when we talk about Alzheimer's, what exactly is it? Is there a difference between Alzheimer's and dementia?
1: Yeah, that's a really great and very common question. Uh, There is a difference between dementia and Alzheimer's, and one way to think about it quite simply is dementia is just a much more broad term. So Alzheimer's fits into dementia, it's one cause of dementia, Uh, But there are other types of dementia that aren't Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies. They're all somewhat similar in that they involve decline in thinking skills, memory, some change in personality, but each of them has a unique cause, and Alzheimer's is one cause. Sometimes we encourage people to think about it in terms of the analogy of cancer and leukemia. So cancer is a broad category and leukemia is one specific type, but there are other types of cancer that aren't leukemia. So dementia is the broad category and Alzheimer's is one specific type. It's just that it's by far the most common type of dementia. So it gets the most attention. It's where we have the most research and uh, care planning developed
2: and at the end of the day while they may have different points of origin they they essentially from what i gather dr mast uh, kind of take their toll in the same fashion and that is um the the earliest memories seem to go or the, the, sorry the 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 latest memories seem to go Uh, first, and the earliest seem to go last. It is progressive. Some people um, uh, progress in a downward spiral at a much faster rate than others. The behavior patterns can be slightly different, but at the end of the day, the essential impact on memory is about the same, is it not?
1: Yeah, that's that's generally true. I think in the earliest stages, uh, some of those different dementias might look a little bit different, uh, so some of them might have personality change before the memory problems show up, but you're entirely correct that the longer people live with those various dementias, the more they start to look similar. Uh, each of those dementias is progressive, meaning they continue to get worse. Uh, the person experiences more decline and more dependence on people around them. And uh, So yeah, absolutely.
2: That's that's correct. Help us understand what's happening from a neurological standpoint here, because uh, some people from a broader perspective might say, well, isn't memory memory? I mean, either it stays or it goes. Why does dementia or Alzheimer's seem to be selective in that it picks away at the most recent memories first, And amazingly, somebody who can't remember what they had for breakfast or has forgotten the name of a child that's been in the family for 40 or 50 years uh, can take you back to a childhood memory uh, 80 years ago and recall it with such vivid detail. And if it's a family member whose history, you know, detail with accuracy and yet not know what they had for lunch. Why is that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's, it's a great point that you make that not all memory is affected evenly by Alzheimer's disease. And the reason that we see this difference in that people forget the most recent memories or new memories first and hold on to those long-term memories for their early life and story has a lot to do with the way Alzheimer's affects the brain. So, to give the short version of it, there are tiny microscopic changes in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease that have to do with abnormal functioning of a couple of specific proteins, and they start in a specific region of the brain called the hippocampus, uh, which is in the temporal lobes, sort of inside the skull just by the ears. And those parts of the brain are responsible for a specific aspect of memory. Basically, what they do is they convert short-term memories into long-term memories that are stored and recalled later. So for you to remember anything I'm saying to you now, your hippocampus needs to essentially store that, kind of like saving information on a hard drive or putting a file away in a file cabinet. If it's stored there, you have a decent chance of remembering it or being able to retrieve it later. And if it doesn't get stored, it doesn't matter how hard you try later, if it isn't stored, you can't go back and get it because it's not there. That's a bit like what's happening in early Alzheimer's disease, where people are forgetting, like you said, uh, things from earlier in the day, what they had for breakfast or what they did yesterday or whether they have a doctor's appointment next week. Those things aren't being stored effectively in the brain, whereas those older memories that you referred to were stored long ago. So not only were they stored, but they've probably been rehearsed many times over throughout life. And so they just... Uh, and essentially involving different regions of the brain, and some of those are affected by Alzheimer's early on, and some are spared much longer.
2: You touch on something that I find fascinating, and I'd like to have you explore it a little bit deeper. In reading your book, Second Forgetting, it it struck me the stories accounting of cases of folks who, again, in in their current life um, barely remember... Uh, who their spouse may be or their children uh, have difficult negotiating even basic tasks. But if they are pulled into a church service, for example, and the worship leader begins singing a hymn uh, or reciting a passage of Scripture that this person encountered, 70 years ago, suddenly they can recall that information with almost incredible accuracy. I remember once watching a YouTube video of a woman, uh, full-on Alzheimer's, barely communicative, really couldn't even engage in conversation. The the impact of the disease was that so severe. But she had spent a lifetime as a church accompanist or, or, or organist or pianist and on Sundays would be coerced or coaxed into playing the piano for fellow residents in her memory care facility. And while this woman couldn't even tell you the name of the people that she lived with, sit her down in front of a piano and ask her to play something, and she would flawlessly recall and play out a A hymn of the faith, you know uh, how great that art or whatever that she had learned as a little girl and had played for an entire lifetime. And, and I have to wonder if part of this, and you, you alluded to uh, rehearsing, is part of this the difference between what we do intentionally towards memorization versus, for want of a better term, you can fill me in on this, incidental. For example, uh, um, I, I was walking down the hallway and a coworker walked past me and he's wearing a bright orange uh, tie. Um, I might remember that, I might not remember that. But if I've taken the time to memorize or or commit to memory an address or a telephone number, um, or in this case, taken the time to commit to memory, a memory versus a child, is there a difference in the behavior of the way the brain works between sort of this incidental recall of information versus the very intentional uh, practicing and memorizing?
1: Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think what you're getting at is these different aspects of memory are tapping into different memory systems. So one way to think about it is uh those older memories, whether it's those memories for uh, hymns or well-loved, familiar passages from Scripture, or maybe the Lord's Prayer is something that we see people recalling uh better than other things. Uh, Some of it is that those things have been repeated so long over the lifespan that they are embedded in what we would call a procedural memory system. And without getting overly technical, when somebody says something is like riding a bike, really what they're doing is referring to procedural memory, something that you've done so often that you don't even have to think about what are the steps for how to do it. Most people don't have to think about how to ride a bike and swinging their leg over and pedaling. They just get on and they do it. And sometimes they don't even consciously think about it, but that system of memories is there because it's been repeated so many times. So for people with music and hymns and prayers that are very familiar, that they've repeated many times, it's like they were embedded in this different memory system. But a second component of that is what we would call the emotional aspects of memory. So for a well-loved hymn that is particularly meaningful for a person, not only have they maybe repeated it many times over the decades of their lifespan, it may hold particular uh, emotional and spiritual attachments, and so maybe it brings a sense of comfort or a sense of hope or a sense of renewed faith. You know, you mentioned a couple of songs, you know, the old rugged cross comes up often and amazing grace come up often, and these are just deep and strongly felt uh, songs of the faith. And so not only are they connected to this sort of procedural memory system, but they also have this emotional memory aspect. So you have really two different aspects that are working to help you remember. And they're an important part, going back to your initial theme, is that if you're going to care for people spiritually, uh, and we want to help people remember and reconnect with their faith, These are different routes that we can do that to draw upon those things that are relatively spared.
2: Um, We're going to take a time out, but when we come back, Doctor, I want to dive a little bit deeper because you've touched on um, memory that uh, can trigger emotions and see the way that brings, you know, something out of a person, Uh, the procedural memory, like uh, nobody has to stop and think about, okay, I'm going to brush my teeth, turn the water on, put the toothbrush under, open up the cap of the toothpaste. I mean, you've done it 10,000 times in your life. We don't give any thought to this. These things are committed procedural memory. But as we think about Alzheimer's, ministering to or dealing with Alzheimer's, Patients, we, we tend to think almost singularly because it's the it's the it's the aspect of the person that, that 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 is the most challenging, and that is their memory loss. We tend to think of them in terms of um, memory capacity or lack thereof. But there's another dimension to this that we're going to talk about after the break, and as the spiritual dimension, because certainly from a biblical perspective, we recognize that man is not just the flesh side. And the brain side and the intellect side, but there's also the spiritual dynamic. So is there a way to be able to tap into something at a spiritual level that, to a degree, completely bypasses some of the, uh, the broken or defective parts of the memory? We'll talk about that next. Dr. Benjamin Mast is with us today, professor and chair in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Louisville. His new book is called Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of the Gospel During Alzheimer's Disease. We take this time out. We'll get an update on traffic, then back with more as Lifeline continues. All right, here's that traffic update for you. 5.50 on the clock, and Steve Ferrero, what's up?
0: now back to lifeline with craig roberts
2: our conversation continues with dr benjamin mast he is professor and chair in the department of psychological and brain sciences at the university of louisville he is an expert in the arena of geriatric memory care specializing in aging, Alzheimer's disease, and dementia-related issues, and the author of a new book uh, just newly released by Zondervan. It's called Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of the Gospel During Alzheimer's Disease. Now, uh, Dr. Mast, if we were to talk about um, basic core ministry, I would say that most churches, most ministers engage in wanting to to uh, to touch on the, 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 the trifold ministry. Uh, that would be ministering to the body, if a person is hungry or sick, uh, certainly to the mind, as we educate them in the things of Christ and disciple them, and most importantly, to their spirit. Uh, Man is not single-dimensional. And so in that end, I have to wonder, do we far too often singularly focus on the thing that we see impacting that person's life the most, the the diminishing ability to recall, recall things? and do so at the risk of ignoring the need and the capacity of, of being able to connect with their spirit?
1: Yeah, that's such a great, a great point. I think when we uh, start to approach people, whether in ministry or in family caregiving, as you were mentioning earlier, uh, you know, we start to tend to focus on getting people to remember. And it's almost as if we want to see what they can still do and i think sometimes we do that more for ourselves to try to comfort ourselves that there are still parts of their memory that remain and and it's been my experience over the years that that we do tend to overlook this spiritual care of people with alzheimer's that we're more concerned with how they're functioning than than how their soul is doing and part of that is a very practical challenge of how do we meet the spiritual needs of people with alzheimer's disease what I found in writing Second Forgetting and speaking at churches and just interacting with people over it is um, that many people were experiencing this and desiring this, but they just didn't have a framework for thinking about it. And one of the things that I think happens in families when they care for somebody that they love and they now start to see them decline is they, in some ways, start to forget the spiritual care. You know, it's so overwhelming, as you said, to care for somebody who's confused, and maybe they've uh, become combative and aggressive, and you know, how do we even get to a point where we start to think about, well, how do I encourage this person's faith? How do I provide them comfort in the midst of something that for them is is at least as confusing for them as it is for us? And how do we find ways to step in without just being completely overwhelmed by the challenges in front of us.
2: And I think you touch on an important reality here, that oftentimes for the caregiver, for the family member, this is done in relationship to uh, what we see. We remember when uh, Dad was a you know, brilliant engineer and could calculate math problems in his head, and now uh, he, he barely knows how to dress himself. And so we, we look at this, we diagnose this, we relate to it in relationship to what we see as the diminished capacity. Uh, But I think we need to quickly remind ourselves, you know, while there's an expiration date, should the Lord uh, tarry, there's an expiration date for every one of us. I may not know what that date is, but I know to a pretty good certainty the day is going to come that they're going to say, oh, what a great guy. He was such a good radio announcer poor guy, alas, no longer with us, that the body will fade, the memory will fade, and eventually this carcass that I occupy will disappear. But that's not the end of the story, because we also know that man is also a spiritual being and an eternal being in that sense. And so maybe we're doing a huge disservice here in thinking that we should only be concerned with physical care or um, care for the brain, and we, we, as a result, forego ministry to the Spirit. And I'd like to think that, well, certainly, you know, you and I, doctor, can have a conversation about the things that I remember that God has done in my life and the high-water marks of times when God has healed me, you know, uh, done amazing things in my life, and that certainly is committed to memory, but I'd like to think all of that in my relationship with him goes much, much deeper than what's going on between my two earlobes.
1: Yeah. I think that the question that I come back to in this is, and I imagine you have listeners who might be thinking the same thing, is it sounds nice to try those different ways of getting people to remember, but you have no idea, you know, how far along the person that I take care of is. Those things seem like that would be such a stretch for them to be able to to sing a song or say the Lord's Prayer. What, what, for example, do you do when a person? has progressed to a point when they can no longer speak and seem to interact anymore. And I think that when we think about the spiritual care, it's it's not only about what we do, but it's also about embracing and remembering, you know, what the Scriptures say about who we are as human beings in relation to God. You know, that each of us still has value, we still have a sense of dignity as people created in His image. And he calls us to continue to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love him with all that we do, including taking care of other people. And so the question becomes, will we trust, you know, the promises in Scripture that God cares for each of his people, that he promises that he'll never forget them, even if they were to forget him? And will we remember that he promises that nothing in all of creation, even Alzheimer's disease and great confusion can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. I think when we think about that spiritual care, part of it is what we do, but part of it is remembering the great promises and the presence of the Lord that we see
4: through Scripture.
2: And I've got to believe, if we're going to be true to what it is that we we preach, that even as there may be diminished capacity... Mentally, that the capacity to connect with God is still there. I mean, let's take a five-year-old child. We would we would certainly say that a five-year-old child is not cam- capable of memorizing calculus, or um, uh, operating uh, very complicated equipment, or an automobile, or whatever. But nobody would say that a ch- five-year-old child uh, can- cannot have an awareness of God. That child certainly can, and I believe that that child can can have a sense of connectivity. To God. So maybe we do a great disservice to the Alzheimer's patient by somehow suggesting that because they can't connect with us at our level, that somehow they can't, neither can they connect with God at his level. Does that make sense? Right.
1: Right. Absolutely. Would we ever want to put limits in terms of what the Holy Spirit can accomplish in providing for people's spiritual needs and connecting them? I'm reminded of the words in Psalm 139 describe how deeply God knows us and searches our hearts, and the way in the New Testament in Romans it describes the Holy Spirit interceding in prayers on our behalf when we don't know what words to pray. And I think about we neglect that aspect of thinking about the person, that that is still a spiritual being, a spiritual child of God and yeah maybe we can't reach them but there is still one who likely can and we have to trust that that god's able to do that
2: from my own life experience i recall my my stepfather's mother uh who had been a christian uh and a dedicated one her entire life um and as she grew older the effects of time and dementia began to take its toll um and she spent probably the last 15 years of her life in a nursing home, and probably the last mm, three, four years, really not communicative at all I mean she could she was able to eat with help, but that was about the extent of it she couldn 't carry on a conversation uh, in the last probably year of her life was was fairly unresponsive. Uh, meaning you can come in and out of the room, and she wouldn't even acknowledge you. But the thing that I always found fascinating is that we would occasionally uh, go and visit her as the entire family and would sing hymns together, and here, while Grace, I love that name, while Grace wouldn't squeeze your hand or acknowledge your presence in the room, when you began to sing some of these hymns of old there would be a stirring, and she'd open her eyes, and she'd look around the room, and you could see life. You could see a brightness come back into her eyes that typically wasn't there. And that said to me that there was something about those great hymns of faith that, that connected at a much deeper level, that connected not just to her earliest childhood memories, but I've got to believe connected at a spiritual level for her as well
1: right, and it's it's one example of uh, hundreds and thousands of people for whom that's happened, and it is a ministry, and it is, we can't ever force those things to happen. I think sometimes in Alzheimer's and dementia care, we want to think about these things as techniques that we can try, and they, they either work or they don't work, but we need to keep in mind that As in any ministry, we're stepping in in love and faith and doing what we can to minister to the person's needs and help them connect. And when it happens, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, But at the same time, sometimes we try things and the person doesn't respond the way that they had hoped, but we're still trusting that the Lord is doing the work uh, and not us.
2: And, and, you know, I think to that point that we're going to take a time out, and I want to ask you, Dr., to stay with us for another segment. But I I think to that point, too, we also need to put this in perspective. Are we doing this ministry for our sake or for their sake? If it's for our sake that we're trying to, like the proverbial Pavlovian dog, uh, elicit some sort of a reaction out of them that says to us they're still there, they're still capable of responding, remembering, et cetera, et cetera, and that's comforting for us. I mean, I don't want to discount that at all. But is that our intent, or is our intent is our intent to do something that will draw them closer to us, which is a natural, I think, desire, or is the intent of ministry ultimately to help them in their connection with God? And are we therefore working hardest to drive them closer to us, or hardest to drive them closer to God? I think at the end of the day, if we were really being honest with ourselves, the thing that the Lord calls upon us to do is to help that person draw closer to the Lord. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation, some closing remarks. Dr. Benjamin Mass with us today. The book, Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of the Gospel During Alzheimer's Disease. We'll take this time out, get you an update on some traffic. Let's do that right now, 604. And we've got Steve Ferreira in the KFAX Traffic Center with the latest. Steve, all yours.